the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. Welcome to Wine Women Radio, where we discuss what we're drinking and what's happening in the wine industry. Pour yourself a glass and enjoy the show. Good afternoon, everybody. It's Wine Women Radio Hour. I'm Marsha Meekumber here today with Misty Rodebush Kane. Hey, Misty, how are you today? Hi, Marsha. I'm fantastic. Thanks. Good to see you, although probably most of our listeners <laughs> uh, don't do that. We are still Zooming in order to record our podcasts uh, due to the pandemic, but uh, it's still working out for us because we still get to kind of connect that way. Uh, I think Lisa Adams-Walter is on assignment today, but um, it's highly possible she could jump in at any time, but um, that's our other co-host that would normally be with us, but I think we'll be missing today. And today we have a really exciting guest with us today that I've really been looking forward to talking with, and that is Nicole Marchese. Hello, Nicole, how are you? I am doing well, I'm happy to be here. It's great to have you with us. Nicole is winemaker for Farniente Wines in Napa Valley, a long storied um, very well-regarded uh, Cabernet and Chardonnay producer whose history goes all the way back to 1885. Uh, that's the winery, not Nicole personally. <laughs> he didn't go back to 1885. <laughs> uh, but Nicole, you had a very interesting background, and I think that is a perfect place for us to begin our little discussion um, before we dig in to talk about your beautiful 2018 cab here, which is you didn't anticipate going into wine when you first entered UC Davis. Correct. And, and you also, it looks like you also thought, oh, maybe you might go down the road into writing, but then you said, oh, no, 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 not for you. Uh, Tell us a little bit about your journey through UC Davis and, and how you got onto the wine career path. Absolutely. So I'm originally from Vacaville, which is between Napa and Davis. So I, I stayed fairly close to home. I knew pretty early on I wanted to go to UC Davis, having visited there a lot. And my dad is an Aggie alumni as well. Um, and I knew I wanted to go into science, so I signed up for biology and thought I would pursue something along those lines, but found that I was um, very lost in a crowd and a very large major. And um, so I decided to try a lot of different things. And one of those things was working for the newspaper, the school newspaper, the Aggie. And mm -hmm. I ended up getting to write an article about the viticulture and enology department interviewed the professors and just learned it even existed and thought, wow, this is a really great way to apply science in a way that is outdoors and creative and sort of um, speaks to community togetherness. Took the intro class and uh, I didn't look back. Um, discovered I was much better at writing lab reports than articles. So, <laughs> but it was a great, it was a great way to discover it. And then, um, and then also being in, a, being in classes with people who were really passionate, who cared about wine and food and, and just coming together and enjoying, enjoying and sharing together has been really, really important part for me in this industry. 
Well, cool. What a great, what a great beginning. And tell us a little bit about your um, postgraduate internships. This is part of the the standard rigmarole for entering the wine industry is not just to work in Napa Valley or in Vacaville, really close to home, but to visit other wine growing regions and learn what they do. Tell us a little bit about that. So my, my first job post-harvest was at Iron Horse out in Sebastopol. And, wow. and it, was, it was great. It was mostly sparkling, which was totally new for me and it, very small operation. So I was really like working hand in hand with the, with the winemaker there. And so that was basically like his assistant getting to do everything. And that was really awesome. Everything included getting to be the capsule girl on the bottling line, just like putting capsules on and realizing, hey, this is not super glamorous, but you know, it's gotta be done. You gotta do every job to really appreciate it all. Um, and then after that harvest, I went to New Zealand and worked at a really large operation. And it was in a winery um, in Hawke's Bay called, it's called Sacred Hill. And they uh, were a 24 hour operation, meaning like you had your shift for 12 hours and then you handed off your work order if you weren't done to the next shift. And that gave me a totally different perspective. I made a lot of, a lot of friends that was, there were 15 interns and, um, and I, I learned different skills. I was filling up tankers a lot and uh, doing lots of uh, Chardonnay rackings was one of my big tasks there. So it was really good for me to get that perspective and also just jump into the international community of wine, which I think is what's really amazing about this industry is that your community, our community is not just Napa, our community is like worldwide. Wow, have you, did that, that experience in New Zealand with you just think like 24 hour shifts, wow, that's, you know, pretty. Yeah. Pretty, pretty daunting. I know we do it a lot here in um, in Sonoma and Napa wine country as well. But do you feel that you know that experience has helped support your winemaking, your current responsibilities? Are there any big takeaways that you brought from that experience? Um, I, I mean, I think it, it totally gave me a perspective on like working for twelve hours is a long time, and like and putting in the work and you know, not having a day off for quite a while, it, like that builds stamina, which is really important. I think you need in this industry is st emotional stamina as well as physical stamina. And, um, and it also gave me, it really gave me a sense of teamwork because you, you owned your job that you were working on, but you relied on everybody else. And if you weren't finished with your job, you needed to make sure that it was set up in a way that you could pass it off to the next person who would finish it. And so being able to um, be mindful of other people's jobs that were all like working towards the same task, that was a really important takeaway for me as well. Yeah, that's great. The ability to sort of hold everyone accountable, that sounds, mm -hmm. um, yeah, and make sure that the job's done with a greater, greater goal in mind than just your yeah. little, you know, your individual responsibilities. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. I'm curious um, about, since you described a lot of your experience in New Zealand, um, what is different or similar to here in terms of the gender split ratio where like, were you one of the rare women there or were there a lot of women working at uh, Sacred Hill? Um, and since, you know, <laughs> the gender issues in the mm -hmm. industry have been in the news recently quite a bit, 
I was just curious whether or not, you know, you observed that it, something was quite different there in a good or bad way at the time. I mean, you know, this is well over a decade ago. Yes. So. so I think the experience, my experiences working in the cellar in both the United States and New Zealand were fairly similar in the sense that it was mostly male, but there definitely, definitely were females and females in positions of leadership in, in the cellar. So I, I've been really fortunate in that and that like I, I worked at Gunlock Bunchu in Sonoma and Linda Trotter was the winemaker there. So I like I saw a female winemaker in charge. And when I was at Sacred Hill, there was um, there was another female winemaker who had sort of moved up the ranks and she was starting to take over a new program. And so I got to see somebody who was slightly older than me and see her on that beginning steps of becoming of becoming a winemaker. And, and I think having those role models of seeing that it's possible, like I was, I've been very fortunate and I've, I've basically seen that since day, since day one. And, um, and the other, the family that I, I lived with a family when I was in New Zealand and one of them was the, it was the family of one of the winemakers because they had a couple different brands being made there. And so I lived on their farm and his wife was like, she was just such a role model too, because she was um, part of their family business and running their farm and like just being able to be surrounded by like a, a hardworking woman there too. And she had two little girls and seeing her work and have a family. So seeking out role models, you no know, uh, women role models, it's like working hard and is in any industry is really important. Agreed. And now we've got one in the vice presidential. I I'm going to show you my necklace. I don't know if you can see it, but it says vote, and it has the little woman symbol for the for this for the O. Oh, that's great! <laughs> that is that is great. Yeah, no, it is it is true. And you just um, painted a beautiful picture of us for us in the Hawks Bay with a a farm. Um, were there livestock and other animals there? I just have these majestic views of New Zealand and the coastlines, and I've seen some beautiful pictures. I've never been myself. Um, yeah, it was it was really beautiful, and just um, the sense of hospitality and people welcome you into the, welcome you in, you into their homes. Everybody was very gracious and and like open arms, which was which was really great as a young woman coming in and just feeling very welcome. Yeah, that is great. And were you producing some of the same um, varietal wines there that you produce today, or was it entirely different? When I was uh, when I was there, I mostly worked on the white wine side because it was such a big operation. So I did a, a lot of work on the Chardonnay, which has been great because it's sort of it's translated over here a little bit. I have um, a deep appreciation for for physically stirring barrels for batonage stirring because I did that a lot when I was there, and you just stirring the barrels, and so when when that's the task that I give my team, I, I can appreciate it. Um, I can appreciate the work that they do because I know that it's hiring. Yeah. And for, and for listeners, if you're not already aware, um, Hawks Bay is predominantly planted with Sauvignon Blanc, Chardonnay, Merlot, and then there's also um, a little bit of Pinot Gris, Syrah, Pinot Noir, Cabernet, and then a little bit of some other varietals, but it's predominantly those two whites and the Merlot dominated. Yeah, interesting. So while we're talking about your journeys offshore, so to speak, I was a little bit curious about your time in England during the summers during college. 
And uh, your, your mention of um, uh, getting to focus a little time on Mr. Shakespeare, uh, whom I'm a big fan of as well. Um, now, this wasn't during your winemaking period, but I don't know, has, has anything about, you know, your time learning about Shakespeare made its way to your, your world of wine and, and, you know, the way you approach things? It's a totally unexpected question, and I love it. So, like, nobody I didn't like, mean to stump the no, it's totally it's I'm fine. Just curious. <laughs> yeah, no, I did. I uh, I did summer school at the University of Sussex one year, and got to take a Shakespeare class and a local history class, and just loved that. Um, I wouldn't say like Shakespeare specifically has influenced, but an appreciation of um, an appreciation of literature, an appreciation of philosophy, an appreciation of the arts is really important in winemaking because yes, it is a lot of science, but at the end of the day, we're making a product that people enjoy together and wanna to talk about. And that's sort of, and I always thought it'd be fun to like have a bookstore that you paired wines with, you know, the, the, the wine and book pairing. And so I think that sort of sensibility um, has definitely influenced how I, I, how I think about wine and how I think about how it's enjoyed and definitely how I relate to people I work with. I don't want to, you know, my team, my, my assistant and my coworkers, we're not just talking science stuff. We're, ta we're, we're talking, how does this wine make you feel? How, what do you think about? And it reminds me of this. And those are really, um, those are really fun conversations and sort of bring, bring a lot of joy to it. So not Shakespeare specifically, but just generally you know, arts and literature and love of I, I certainly get that because we we've all probably seen over the years um, wine and book pairing lists, wine and music pairing mm -hmm. lists, besides the typical wine and food pairings. Um, so it's always really fun to me imagine imagining all those things. Not to mention, I I think for a lot of people, a really fun thing to do is being able to sit down with somebody over a bottle of wine, enjoying a glass, and talking about a book you're reading, whether or not it's an actual book club, or you just, you know, both happen to have read something together. It's another, it's another form of uniting and connection, which we all crave. Absolutely. So, yeah, <laughs> I know. Absolutely agree with you on that. And there's nothing better than, you know, this change of season and the fall time frame to cozy up with a nice book by the fireplace and a glass yeah. of Cabernet, especially this yeah. Farniente Cabernet. It'd be great. Exactly. So before I, we talk I, about, sorry. Oh, oh no, I just had one more book comment, but I was going to say, I actually do a lot of Audible because of, I, I live in Sonoma and work in Napa and so commuting and then driving around to different vineyards and especially with the Napa Cabernet where the vineyards are more spread out all up and down the, um, the valley that oftentimes when I go sampling, I ha I'll have a book or a podcast. And so I have these like visceral memories of certain books or certain parts of the story and being in different vineyards. And, and that's, that's, I really enjoy that. It's like a happy place of like book in the ear, sampling grapes, beautiful Napa and uh, yeah. You make me think of that, um, I think it's an audible television commercial or something where they, they use CGI to like show somebody being transported from the family scene they're in to like the middle ages, you know, where they're, they're taken 
to that place. And it's just, you know, it's a great visual representation of, <laughs> of what Audible can do. Yeah. So fun. So let, let's jump ahead to Farniente. Uh, you first joined in 2005, is that yes. right? Yep. So, so tell us about getting started with Farniente and then, and then perhaps meld into a little bit about the Farniente history. Okay. I said it goes back to 1885, which is not all, all your years, but. <laughs> so I, I came to Farniente in 2005 as the enologist and I had, I had worked a few harvests abroad and, and, and in Sonoma and had decided that I was really, um, I was ready to find something uh, full-time and a girlfriend of mine worked in the marketing department at Farniente and she's like, oh, you should, you should apply. It's really awesome there. And so I, I came and had, uh, had a great interview and hit it off with Greg, who's the Dolce winemaker and, um, and our director of winemaking at the time, Dirk Hampson, and then the winemaker at the time, Stephanie Putnam. And we just, there was a good connection there. And I, so I came on board and then became her assistant a few years later. And then uh, she moved on in 2009 and I was still fairly green and young. And I was given an opportunity to take over Farniente um, Cabernet and Chardonnay in 2009. So I actually just hit my 15 year mark in February this year with the company and have Woo-hoo! been making the wine for 10 years. So yeah, I, it's, you know, when things, you, things feel right and you find your people and your place and I, um, I'm getting to make wines that I really enjoy and I am proud of, and I have a, a, a really solid team in the cellar of, um, of guys who've been there for a long time. Which has been which has been really great, and I and being at a company that has multiple brands, um, so we have Nickel and Nickel Dolce on Route, which is a Pinot Noir brand, and a new brand called Bella, a newish brand called Bella Union, and that there's we have a group of winemakers, and so I have colleagues and friends that were we work together as a as a winemaking team, and and that's really nice. So you're not like just isolated as the one winemaker. You've got this this team to work with. Um, and then do you, do you, so getting into Farniente's history. So like you said, Farniente started in 1885 and it was, um, owned by a man named John Benson who uh, came out, I believe for the gold rush. He was the nephew of Winslow Homer. And so behind me, there's actually a few, some Winslow Homer prints, um, that they have, we have in our old founders, um, we call it the founders room and it used to be, um, our our founder's office. But um, the the winery was built by Hamden McIntyre, who was an architect who built, um, who designed Greystone, which is the, the CIA, um, Chateau Montalena, um, Trefethen is actually the same floor plan, but made of wood and we're, we're made of stone. So that's- that's, oh, that's interesting. Cool. Yeah. It. And um, so it was this, it was a winery called Farniente and that didn't survive prohibition. And so it became an abandoned building. And we still get stories from some um, old timers in Napa saying, oh, I used to have the best parties when I was in high school there at this old stone building. I mean, I could just imagine it. Um, and then our modern founder, Gil Nickel, who came out from Oklahoma, he came from the nursery business, Greenleaf Nursery, um, came out to Napa, fell, fell in love with it, fell in love with this property, purchased it and restored it. and 
were on the uh, list, the, the, the Register of Historic Places. And the landscaping is unbelievable. It's a pretty magical place on the bottle. You can see a picture of, of the winery. And uh, we, he started out with a Farniente Chardonnay in 1979. And then that was followed with Cabernet in 1982. Wow. wow. That what is a, impressive. Yeah, what a rich history. And I love the timelessness of, you know, like you mentioned, the, the label that we're looking at here. It has a depiction of the building and it's very classic, very timeless. And um, having, you know, actually not... Um, you know, abandoned for a while, but then resurrected. That's a pretty yeah. impressive history. Yeah. I love the name Farniente. The website says it means it's Italian for without a care, which is a perfect name really for the wine world because <laughs> that's why a lot of people drink wine <laughs> is so they can go around without a care for a time being. Uh, but one of the things that I've always been curious about Farniente is this gorgeously designed label. Um, it has a nod to traditional French labels of the chateau, mm -hmm. um, but also it is one of the very few label designs I know of that's done in the classic Art Nouveau style. And so I was wondering it, what you knew about the whole history of the label design because it's so incredibly distinctive in Napa Valley. It really stands out. So Gil, um, Gil, Gil Nickel, our modern founder, he actually he passed away in 2003. So I never got the opportunity to meet him, but I've heard so many stories. And his his widow Beth Nickel is has is an amazing person with so much history and goodness and like everything. So I've heard a lot. And um, so he was a real visionary where he really wanted this. He wanted this estate to be the Napa Valley wine estate. He, he did model it after the great chateaus where we're gonna focus on one really amazing Cabernet and we're gonna, we're gonna focus on an amazing Chardonnay. And so he, it was, he was very visionary. Their good friend, Tom Rodriguez, actually designed the label. Um, so it was a hand-drawn label that he designed. Um, and he's gone on to design all of, all of our labels, actually. And so that they all remind, like if you see the lineup of Farniente and Dolce and Nickel and Nickel and En Route and Bella Union, you'll see that, that you can tell that they're from the same family yes. um, because they all have that, that um, sort of Art Nouveau, Belle Epoque sort of style yep. to them. Um, yeah, he, I think he was, he was very focused on tradition. I think he, he really wanted to model it after, after, um, France. And one of the things that I've appreciated hearing and tasting wines, um, from Farniente, I, as a, as an assistant, as a, as a young winemaker, I had an opportunity to taste lots of verticals of, of, of old vintages of Farniente and verticals of, um, of old Bordeaux and, and some verticals of Napa Valley wines and really talk about a shift in identity for Napa and especially Napa Valley Cabernet, where for a long time, we were really trying to chase Bordeaux and trying to be like, th that, that was the ideal. And then there's a turning point. I think there's a turning point probably at different points for different wineries. And when it's like, no, you know, we are, we're Napa, we're not Bordeaux, right? And so there's this, there was a, a shift in identity and, um, 
and I and I really appreciate that. Like it, there's a it's a good place to have. Um, you have an ideal that you're chasing, and then like part of the way that you're like, no, I am the ideal. Like we are the ideal, and um, and so now we're not, we're Napa. We're not trying to trying to chase brands, which I think is pretty cool. Nice, really nice. Well, that leads us kind of naturally to the beautiful 2018 Cabernet Sauvignon that um, you're sharing with us today. Um, we've got the bottles out here and we'll make sure that our listeners get to see the bottles um, when we post the, the links on the website uh, and on our web pages for this. Um, so let, let's talk a little bit about this. This is the um, estate Cabernet Sauvignon, I believe. Yeah. It's so on the bottom, but anyway. From the so this, yeah, so so Farniente started out with a making an Napa Valley Cabernet, and then uh, around 2000, 2001, we made a shift to mm -hmm. just really focus on our home in Oakville, and we started making only an Oakville appellated Cabernet. So we really sort of like drew back, focused on our home, became experts at our home in, in Oakville. And then um, in 2017, we started dabbling. And then in 18, we really went into it hard of wanting to bring back our heritage wine of a Napa Valley Cabernet. So I actually make two Cabernets now instead of just, instead of one. So we have the Napa Valley Cabernet, and then we have um, our Oakville Estate Cabernet, which is from our home vineyard, which right. is 100% Oakville. Right. So what I love about this wine personally is that it's given me this um, opportunity to learn more about making Cabernet from all the, from different appellations within Napa, because they are very, um, they are very different. That's one of the unique things about Napa is that there's so much variation in such a small, small valley and Cabernet can have a lot of different expressions depending on where it's grown. So the backbone of the wine is still Oakville um, because that's where our home is. And it's sort of, the way I approach this wine is that it is our version of a Napa Valley Cabernet through the lens of Oakville. Um, where our home vineyards have, um, they have a lot of great backbone and structure, really good um, mixed berry fruit, um, boysenberry I get a lot of. Uh, we're on the west side of the valley, so the, the, the fruit profile tends to be a little bit um, more boysenberry blackberry rather than like the dark, dark black cherry on the other side of the valley, from, at least in my opinion. And then we've gone to other appellations like um, Oak Knoll, which is uh, south of us that um, have some wines with really great color and texture. They're a little later ripening. We have Calistoga fruit, which has some really beautiful uh, floral jammy aromatics, a little bit of Diamond Mountain, which is like these tiny intense little berries that are very structured, um, a little bit of Stag Sleep and St. Helena. And they kind of all come together to make, um, I think a really beautiful expression of classic Cabernet in Napa. It's yeah. It's it's beautiful. I've, you know, I've been sipping away while you've been talking all of this time, Nicole. And um, I, I had some interesting initial impressions, which is I got, um, I got really strong raspberries as part of the mixed berries at first, which I really enjoyed. I mean, it was just so, so fruit forward and, um, just delicious on the nose and on the palate, uh, you know, so it was a part of that whole mixed berry up front. But then I also, I, I wrote down, oh, I got touches of chocolate and a little bit of leather and a little bit of tobacco and they're all kind of standard 
characteristics of Cabernet from Napa Valley. Um, Misty, what else are you getting? I actually get, I, I get all of that. You know, I got a lot of um, boysenberry fruit, um, which was really delightful because um, it still has a little bit of tartness. Mm -hmm. And yes, then um, also a tad of like baking spice, which I thought was really like fantastic. It's like interwoven through and then it sort yeah. of lingers on. Yeah, it's yeah. spice or something. Yeah. That's one of the things I love about this wine is that there's, for me, it comes across as like, there's a savory sort of note to it where there's like, like dried herbal that's not, doesn't come across as like green, but there's just those, like a little bit of thyme and lavender almost for me, sometimes I get coming up through the nose, but baking spices for sure. And I think that um, it makes it really interesting for pairing in that you can, um, you can pair with like really fruitful dishes, but you can also like draw on some of the savory notes or spicy notes, um, baking spices in a dish that, um, that would pair well with a, with a Napa cab. Um, across the palate, I get um, a lot of silkiness like there's definite, like it coats your palate, but isn't too, it isn't so heavy. It's like mouth filling and tannin structure for me is very like fine grain where they sort of melt, they melt away, they're present, but they're not drying. And I like that um, your note about like good brightness and acidity. I think it's really important that wines even and red wines have some good acidity. So there's like a, it makes your mouth sort of water and you want another sip. And will pair well with food and 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 age really well too. On another note, Nicole, I was um, you know I think that you really answered it really well. But in an interview with the Napa Valley Vintners, you were quoted for saying, "In my winemaking, I'm always asking myself why and how." And um, as a marketer myself, you know, not just in winemaking. But I am always asking, you know, myself and my team sort of those same questions. And you just did that for us. I mean, you just walked us through this whole like Napa Valley. And like you told us about all of the different vineyard sites that you're pulling in. And then you explained to us, you know, you didn't just say like, oh, I, I use some fruit from Calistoga and from Oak Knoll and from St. Helena and Stag's Leap. But you really explained the why behind it and like what it's doing to the wine and in the same way that you did with the pairings. So I think that that's interesting. And if you want to tell us a little bit more about that philosophy or sort of what drives that. Yeah, I, I, um, as I've become more confident in my winemaking and confident as a leader and become a lot more self-aware. One of the things I've realized that gives me joy is, is being very curious and wanting to ask why. And I think um, when something really, when something works really well, you're like, what did I do? How did I do that again? Cause I want to do that again. Why, like, why did that work? And the same thing when something goes, goes wrong. Okay. What did I do? Cause I don't want to do that again. And, um, and I just, I love that opportunity that, that wine gives you, that every vintage gives you is a chance to learn something new, a chance to do it better, a chance to make some more mistakes that you're going to learn from, to pick yourself up from, and continuing to like, just continuing to learn more and be curious. And um, yeah, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, curiosity, you know, I think that's a fantastic driver for, um, that, that question. And then it also helps us to just sort of improve and get better. And it fuels the curiosity of, um, you know, 
people that are enjoying our wine because they, you know, may might not know as much about wine as is we do in the wine industry or you specifically, you know, obviously even more than Marsha and myself because you're a winemaker, but um, being able to tell the consumer and the end user enjoying it sort of why they're, you know, what, what they're tasting and why I think is really important. And, you know, if it pairs well with a certain dish, why does it pair well? Mm-hmm. Um, and like, I why did, do you like that? Like when you taste them, you're like, why do I like this? You know, like, I think yeah. that's also interesting. You yeah, see it's so true. Things. And you, and you mentioned, um, on your blog page that you like to enjoy this sometimes with a uh, fall casserole. So I was <laughs> yeah. envisioning a fall casserole as well. And, uh, it was, this was like a specific mushroom casserole. And now I'm like, you know, the savoriness of that dish with mm-hmm. these spice trends, I could just see that, like, just tasting fantastic yeah yeah i'm gonna try that casserole of yours it's Nicole. really good so inviting and i went ah that is absolutely perfect so we'll be yeah. sure to include a link to the recipe for that um, okay. in our our show notes our, we have so two little excited. boys at home and so we always try to like oh, yeah casseroles go over well because you can hide a lot of good stuff in there and we're like oh just put some cheese on it you guys <laughs> <It's good. laughs> Absolutely true. And as, as we all know, uh, cheese goes fantastically with Cabernet because of all those wonderful fats that are mm-hmm. built into cheeses. So I was um, really fascinated to hear your comment about the tannins being very specifically very fine grain tannins. And I like that verbiage because you were highlighting the fact that they didn't the tannins didn't get you to the point where you were overly smacking the sides of Mm -hmm. your mouth, um, which show a different balance between acid and tannins in a cab. And it's, to me, it's part of what makes this cab super smooth because there's just enough even coating throughout the mouth feel that it doesn't block the continued passage from the attack mm-hmm. to the mid-mouth palate and then out to the finish where it just keeps lingering and lingering and lingering really nicely and evenly. So I really appreciate that in your winemaking. I could never do that myself, but <laughs> cheers to you, Nicole. Thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> now, I bet that... Um, your uh, blending sessions are loads of fun because you have all of these source vineyards from Calistoga down to Oakville in which to pick up different notes and figure out how much of any given uh, vineyard you want. And also um, of, of the tiny amounts of other varieties you've used here in blending, I note that you also have the very teeny tiniest amounts of Petit Verdot, Cabernet Franc, Merlot, and Malbec in here. Uh, I'm not sure except anyone except for a winemaker um, could, could pick out the tiniest little notes that you have of these other varieties. What are, what are some of the things that, sh- that cued you to say, I want to add in just a bit of this Petit Verdot or this Merlot to get XYZ flavor profile popping for me. So with the like 
Petit Verdot specifically, Petit Verdot is um, it's a really tannic, dark, dark grape. And I find that it definitely, it lends itself to blending better than a wine on its own because oftentimes the fruit profile is just very, it's purple fruit and it's, there's not a bunch of layers. It's not super interesting, but what it adds in a blend is all that color and tannin can, is it's like glue wine where um, uh, it just gives it body and, and gives it length and breadth that I think is really important. And so sometimes you may have a, you may have a Cabernet that has like these beautiful aromatics and you just need a little bit more width across the mid palette, like Petit Verdot can add, add that. So when I'm adding PV, it's definitely with texture in mind. Um, I find that Cab Franc and Merlot are definitely more um, aromatic enhancers. Um, and, and we've, we're continuing to look for different sources for those. And, and that's been exciting for me is getting to learn more about making some of the, of the Bordeaux blending varietals because in our Oakville estate wine, we, um, we only have Cabernet and a little Petit Verdot for that wine on our estate vineyards. Right. I'm trying to remember how the, the Oakville estate vineyard is not, it's not huge. Um, and that's not the wine that we're tasting today. Um, but, and that one's only, that one's been around for what, about 40, 50 years? No, we started like? making Oakville only in 2001. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. So before that it was, it was, um, a Napa Valley blend when we first started in, in 82, I think it was predominantly Oakville anyway. Um, and then we just really, we, we just really wanted to focus on our home, focus on this like amazing little sub Appalachian and, you know, with, with our experiences as a team with, um, you know, the nickel and nickel wines where those are, the winemaker over there makes like 13 different Cabernets from all over Napa. And so we as a winemaking group have had all this exposure and have learned more about, you know, what it's like to be in Calistoga, what it's like to be in Stag's Leap. And so we've taken those sort of that expertise and brought that back to the, to the Napa Valley. Oh. Can, Nicole, can you talk a little bit about your um, your oak program uh, and your barrel program? Because um, that's obviously plays a major role in how you craft your wines and the profile of them. What have you found really works for you in your barrel program? So we um, we're usually around like between sixty five and seventy five percent new French oak every every year, and that's very vintage dependent. Um, we use 100% French oak because um, that's just stylistically um, works for, for our grapes, mm -hmm. um, which isn't to say that American oak is not good. It just is not a style choice that we've made for our wines. Um, so we are in barrel for about, um, for about 17 months that it ages in barrel, which is mm -hmm. a pretty average good time. Um, and what has been awesome about the culture here, the winemaking culture here of curiosity and trial and like trying trying new things and experimenting is that we've always had what we call a Cooper evaluation where we will we'll, I'll make a base blend of the wine, um, of like the, the main blend, and then we'll, we'll take it down to a variety of different Coopers. And sometimes it's like a new, there's so many different barrel builders and they all have different toasts and how, and it's like, the choices are endless for barrels. It's pretty amazing. Um, 
So then we'll do two barrels from each of the coopers and then that wine will stay in those barrels. And so like when we would do a racking, when you're, when you're taking the clear wine off of the solids that settle, we'll make sure that the same wine goes back to the same barrels. So that then we sit down and we'll sit down with um, wine that's been in these, only in these barrels and taste and talk about what these different coopers, what this barrel adds to the blend. And some of them definitely add aromatics. We're like, yes, that smells like oak, or that's really toasty, or that's really spicy, or that's like marshmallow vanilla. And then um, they, they can have big impact, or they can also, I think what people don't maybe don't realize is that oak does have a textural impact as well. It's not just oak flavors. Um, oftentimes the, the new oak will, will lengthen the palate or, um, or, or give it some more structure or backbone. And so we, that's been a really fun experience is to um, sit down and taste those and evaluate and say, I really like this barrel. I wouldn't want a hundred percent of this barrel, but as, as like a little spice rack, you know, addition, a few of that, those barrels, I think really enhance the blend. And that's something that was started before my time. Um, and that we've definitely continued, we've definitely continued. And it's, that's, it's a chance for education that, you know, I can educate my assistant. And so that when he someday becomes a winemaker, he's going to have all of that knowledge about what these different coopers do. I'm so glad you mentioned that because, um, having done one of the consumer style cooperage tours, um, in South Napa, um, I have been fascinated for a long time in seeing the, the vast number of choices uh, that a barrel program can bring you because a lot of co consumers probably only see the note of the percentage of new French oak mm -hmm. versus uh, you know used or neutral French oak uh, and think that's the end of it. And it's like, it's, it's a much bigger uh, spice box as yes. you put it. Um, because there are all the different toasting levels you can be at and even um, different oaks from the five forests in France, um, the different forests will deliver kind of different flavor profiles. So that was really interesting to hear that you go to that granular level of testing different oak with your blends to see, you know, what the result is. Um, and it's wonderful that you actually have that luxury yes, um, yeah. to do that. Most yeah. wineries, you know, that, that's a very expensive investment to make. It, it is. But I, 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 we're not the only ones who do this by any means. You know, I have a lot of colleagues in the Valley who, who do Cooper valuations. And oftentimes they'll bring in, you know, a representative from the Cooper to taste with them too and talk. And because that, relying on them is really important because they're, they're experts too, and they taste a lot of wines all over the world in their barrels. And um, it's very collaborative. I like that. It's fascinating too. And when you really start talking to those cooperage, how much they actually know about the trees that it was that, the, that yeah. the barrels were harvested from to how long it's cured out in the yards before mm -hmm. it actually turns into a barrel. Um, so when you actually like um, see that whole process, it's, it's pretty, it, it's, it's insane. And there's so many great videos out there, even on YouTube um, about the cooperages and um, you can watch the whole process where, you know, it's actual like a tree and then they're letting it cure and bringing it down into the staves. And 
it's, it's a huge, it's a huge process, but so important to what we do. Mm-hmm. It's absolutely. absolutely fascinating. It's very cool to learn about it. So Nicole, uh, tell us a little bit about like, what's, what's your favorite part of your job? You know, what is the most, is it, is it doing your blending trials or is it, you know, getting out on the floor or is it going to, you know, work with customers? I don't know. It can be different for everybody. Um, it's probably been different at different points in my, at different points in my career, but what I've come to realize, uh, in recent years is that I really do love harvest. (laughs) Like I, like I, um, I work better under pressure and harvest is a pressure situation and you just have to make decisions and and go with them and you know you do you you prepare yourself with all the tools that you need to make good decisions but there's a sense of accomplishment at the end of each day of like i picked those grapes and we got them in a tank and that feels really good and um so, and there's more, the, the atmosphere, I mean, we're all, we're tired, but there's camaraderie and there's, jo- you know, there's high fives and there's joking and there's, you know, we're all working hard and, the, but this is the time when it, when it like really, really counts and we don't get a second chance at it this thing, this vintage. So I, I actually really do love that. And I'm not necessarily like doing a bunch of pump overs, but, you know, making the plans and like, and seeing them executed is very fulfilling or, you know, um, setting, setting people, trying, what I'm working on now is trying to set up my team for success as well. And like set up my assistant to give him more responsibility and see him feel that sense of accomplishment of like, I need you to plan to do this. So you, you plan to do this and we'll see how that, you know, see how that works. And, and when there's a job well done there, that gives me a lot of joy as well. Nice. Well, great, great answers to all that. Missy's got another question. I do. I have a question just about over the last few months, um, you know, with the government um, shutdown or stay at home orders being put in place and a lot less travel. um, We in the wine industry, you know, our winemakers travel quite a lot when it's not harvest, um, you know, into key markets to, you know, visit accounts and, you know, sort of see how the wine's doing in those specific markets. Have you, um, have you felt like what has, what has your experience been like during the stay at home and how has it been different from previous years? And what do you hope to sort of take away from all of this experience? Um, well, in, in terms of travel, just to, to touch on what you, what you first mentioned, I, I wasn't doing a bunch of travel before, um, we were just starting to ramp up into some more travel. And I got like one last trip into Charleston <laughs> right before the lockdown. And that was amazing. That, that community was awesome in Charleston. Um, but what's been interest, what's the difference now is that we're actually starting to connect. I've connected with more people over Zoom that maybe I wouldn't have um, had we been traveling, you know, doing some, um, having an opportunity to do some more wine dinners or taste or tastings with in different parts of the in different parts of the country that maybe we wouldn't have been able to facilitate me being there had I had there needed to be travel involved. So I think there's an opportunity to to touch more people, um, which has been really which has been really great. 
um, in terms of how things are different at the winery and um, my takeaway, um, at the winery right now, we only have our production teams working. We've been working, we've been working nonstop and we, um, we, we're kind of like our bubble, our production bubble. I mean, we all wear our masks and we, we actually get COVID tested frequently and we're um, very aware of taking care of each other and each other's families by, by communicating a lot. Um, and the only other team that is here right now as well is um, some hospitality team members that are doing some outdoor, outdoor tastings, which really glad that we have been able to accommodate that with a beautiful outdoor setting that we have here. Um, so what I've missed is like running into someone from accounting in the coffee room. And I've, I've missed some of the um, being connected to my coworkers that aren't in my department because I, there's a lot of people that I like talking to and enjoy working with and hearing how they're doing. And um, that I'm trying to figure out how, it, how we can be more connected that way. And, and whether that's just like reaching out and saying, hey, can we talk on the phone for a few minutes or shooting some emails or let's have a little Zoom or something. Um, it has to be a little bit more planned. It's not quite as organic, um, but I'm gonna take away um, really working hard to try to maintain those relationships with people that I don't get to see every day. Yeah, that's well, that true. Sounds familiar. Yeah, I, I feel like we did take that for advantage. You know, we, yeah. we had it there and it was just so easy for those um, interdepartmental conversations and- you know, Yeah. So you, you kind of led to my next question, which was you, you told us about what was the most fun and most rewarding part of your job um, over the years, you've got 15 years now with um, Farniente. Um, what do you now think is the most challenging aspect of your job? Um, Aside from the pandemic, leaving. Yeah. <laughs> um, I. Managing people is really hard. Like I'm not gonna lie, it's not, it's not easy. And they don't um, teach you about it in university, do they? <laughs> they? They don't. And I mean, I, I feel like everybody should get a management course or just like everybody should have to take a personality quiz or do an Enneagram or something so that you have like figuring, you know, we work with a lot of different, and I think this is true in any industry is like when you work with a lot of different people and personality types, you sort of have to like change how you communicate with one person. Like one person needs communication this way and another person needs communication this way. And if you have a team that you're trying to relay information to, you know, there's some things that I need to say to the group. And then there's some things that I need to say to somebody individually, or I can verbally tell some people some things other people I need to write it down for them or some people I need to do both you know and and so um it's not an insurmountable challenge it's just a challenge and um and I think it's also um the other challenge I find too is just like is um communicating what I want you know and being communicating to my boss this is what I need to be successful or this is what's not working or I made a mistake and it's communication is the hardest part right and trying trying to say this didn't work this time's with us so how are we going to move past this so that we can like get to a solution and um, you know when you have you know 
not necessarily a disagreement, but maybe a different ideas about something. Yeah. But I think that's true anywhere. And as long yeah. as you've got coworkers that you feel like you feel like you have a space where you can be honest and you can come come to them with like oh, your whole heart and talk about it and move then then you're in a good place because it's never going to be just like rainbows and butterflies all the time. Right. It makes me think of, you know, it's one thing to be able to identify the different personality types through Myers-Briggs and similar things, but it's another matter altogether to quickly be able to pivot to know, oh, this person, you know, is, uh, you know, does better with numbers and facts. And so I need to be delivering that information first. Right. Right. As opposed to a nurturer who wants to get all the touchy feely, are we all feeling great part first before going to the facts. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And you, yeah, navigating that is a challenge, but um, it's really rewarding when you get it right. <laughs> right. Yeah. So um, as we get towards winding things up here, Nicole, I want to make sure that our listeners know What's happening at Farniente right now? Um, what they need to know about club membership, and you know how how are you all juggling um, interfacing with club members and everything during the pandemic? And you know how much are you able to do with outdoor appointments versus uh, just a lot of Zoom sessions with club mm -hmm. members? So. Um... Right now we're, I mean, right now we're still able to do outside tastings. We have a beautiful outdoor space um, that is great. And so you can come, come for a tasting there. Everybody, everybody's very spread out. It's lovely. The, the view is great. Um, and as far as with club members, one of the things that I've been really impressed with is our, our, our DTC team, our director consumer team and how they've really pivoted and have been so innovative on, um, on new offerings, and so one of the uh, one of the offerings that they've been doing monthly is called Hosted at Home, and I, I actually get to participate in my first one on Saturday, and um, and that's like a private happy hour. They're doing I think they have two wines that they're going to taste, and we're going to talk about um, I think we're going to talk about food pairings, and um, and so that's a pretty intimate experience. I think some of the other winemakers have done some on the other months, so. That's been awesome. Um, I think that's a it's a subscription that you can do. It's not a regular wine club. Um, the wine, all the wine club, they have a couple of different levels of wine clubs um, that are still offered. Um, you know, there's a there's a Cabernet club where you just want all the Cabernets, I think, and there's um, one where you just want a little bit of all the brands that come to you and different points in time. So the, all those clubs are still available. I'm not 100% sure how they're going to do. Um, we used We've had some big parties in the past for wine club members, and I think they're trying to do those either virtually or have some sort of smaller events as they can and totally do it safely. But it's definitely on everybody's mind to, um, to still make sure that club members are, are, are still part of the family here because that's really important. There's been, there's club members that have been with us for so long that like, you know, I look forward, we used to, we usually have a big party to celebrate Cabernet in February. And I would look forward to seeing that like once a year, I see you when you come to my table and we, and we say hi again. And, um, and that's, that's really, really special. Nice. 
So hope, I'm looking forward to some more like virtual connection with, with wine club members. It seems logical in the near future since uh, it doesn't seem like um, coronavirus, COVID-19 is instantly going to go away, uh, you know, you know, in the immediate future, hopefully uh, sooner rather than later, but uh, we're still working with it. So yeah. have to do that. Uh, one last question, Nicole, unless, uh, well, I'll let Misty sneak in if she's got one after mine, but I'm curious where you see yourself in another three to five years and Farniente and all that. Um, I, I still see myself here. My boss is probably going to be listening, so I have to say that right now. Um, <laughs> well, you make beautiful wines. So I, I, um, I'm very fulfilled here, and uh, I still think that there's more for me to learn and get better at here. I don't feel like my time is done at all. One of the, um, one, a new avenue for me here is actually being part of a group that's working on social responsibility and company culture and connectiveness, and so I feel like on top of like winemaking, which I'm really passionate about, is that I, I'm really passionate about the people here too. And I and want to make sure that I'm um, I'm getting to connect people too within the company. And we're uh, we're just like in our infant stages of our little our little committee, but I'm really um, excited to be a part of that and getting to work with um, others in different departments. And that too. That is great. Is that part of like a like a sort of like a B certificate, B companies corporate certification, or just independent of that? This is this was just an internal sort of little group that we want to start working on um, on on doing more good. I mean, we're a company that has a long history of giving back. Um, uh, we are huge supporters of the B Foundation. And mm -hmm. um, because Gil Gil actually passed away from melanoma, and so. Um, we've done, done a lot with the Johnson Cancer Research Foundation and the V Foundation. And so we just have, we, um, you know, participate in the wine auction and this is, and so as a company, we've always been part of giving. And this is just a, a group of people we wanted to like do, do some more, like, like, um, what else, what else can we do to like celebrate good things that we're doing and do more and sort of build on what the company's already done. And so I'm excited. That's very cool. I, you know, I hadn't seen anything about that on it's, the website. I could yeah. have completely missed it. It's not, no, it's just, it's, it's a very infant, like internal, it's not like a marketed thing. It's just a little group that we're starting to, um, to work on. It's not, it's definitely not something that's a forward facing sort of thing. It's a internal, internal group, which is cool. Well, we're certainly going to look forward to hearing more about that as it progresses and develops over time. Um, we've certainly seen that um, there's a great deal of shift going on right now um, in, in, in becoming not only individually, but for companies also becoming more responsible to all levels of stakeholders. Um, you know, just, you know, pr pride of place, pride of company and um, looking at additional avenues for that has become increasingly important to everyone involved. So very cool. Yeah. Um, yeah, we're definitely a place where people have, pr have pride in working here. I mean, there's my seller master has been with the company for over 20 years and, and that speaks volumes. I mean, we've got lots of people who are just like, we bleed Farniente. <laughs> 
That's that's really wonderful to hear. You've been there for a good solid 15 years and going on more and your seller master at 20 years. That's remarkable and hopefully it's something we're going to see more and more of as the years pass mm-hmm. that people feel that invested in the company that they work for because uh, Misty and I both know that within the industry historically um, you know when I look back at 10 years ago when just when this imprint was on my mind I was kind of surprised 10 years ago when I learned that you know tenure at most companies by the majority of of employees was like, you know, two and a half, three years at most. And I was just like, oh my gosh, that's exhausting. I constantly change companies and you can't really establish a foundation with that kind of change. So it's wonderful to hear that Farniente, um, it, it has created such a family atmosphere and culture among its employees. Bravo, Absolutely. bravo. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. We're just about out of time, Nicole. Any parting words that you want to leave with our listeners before we sign off? I'm just really excited to be here and have this conversation. It was, um, it felt really good speaking with you. Thank you. Thank you, Nicole. We want to thank you particularly for this beautiful Sauvignon, Cabernet Sauvignon. I mean, it's, you've seen me sipping throughout the whole darn show. It's been absolutely Delicious. We'll be sure to have a link in the show notes um, to the wine so that interested parties can uh, take a look and see if they want to go ahead and make a purchase. Misty, I should turn it over to you to see if there's any parting words you want to leave with everyone. No, ladies, this was a fantastic conversation and I just encourage all the listeners. It inspired me to, um, you know, get connected and stay connected and drink some Cabernet. So especially as the season's turning into fall. So it's, um, was a great conversation. Thank you, ladies. So cheers to you. Cheers. Cheers cheers to all of our listeners out there who are hopefully enjoying a glass of wine while they're listening to this podcast. Yeah, exactly. And thank you listeners for tuning in. We always appreciate your time with us because we know your time is precious. So thank you very much and be sure to tune in next week for another episode of Wine Women Radio Hour. Thanks everybody.